Duncan Holder is brought to you by Game Time, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Saints ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? Game Time tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the Game Time app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. And I'm looking at the app right now, and the top pick is appropriate. It is the national championship game where the LSU Tigers may end up very soon after beating Alabama. So absolutely go check out the Game Time app. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download Game Time and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dat who dat stuff? Who dat? You know, that's really kind of a, a fan. You know, that's that's our 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 chant. Duncan Holder podcast back at you, Larry Holder, Jeff Duncan here with you on the Athletics podcast network of course if you're listening to us through the athletic appreciate your business but if you're listening to us through apple spotify wherever you get your podcast make sure to rate review subscribe all of that jazz and of course you can jump on and subscribe to the athletic through the athletic.com slash duncan holder get 40 percent off and jump on and hear all of our goodies on a thursday because the mondays are the freebie podcast of course we're going to be talking Plenty of LSU Alabama. Joe Burrow is the man. The Tigers should be number one in the college football playoff, barring some crazy person in the committee room uh, thinking that LSU should not be there. Uh, And of course, we're going to be talking and starting off this conversation uh, with Saints, Falcons, and Jeff. You and me were pretty confident about the Saints beating the Falcons. They were a huge favorite going into that game, and that's one of the worst performances overall I've seen from this team probably, say, since maybe 2017, maybe before that. Uh, Of course, the Saints go down to the Falcons 26-9 and just look flat and uh, coming off of a bye week like they're on vacation. And and Jeff, uh, I know uh, as you told the world you uh, were a little bit ill, maybe partying too much in Tuscaloosa with Ed Ogeron and drinking 38 Red Bulls and getting fired up. But uh, but yeah, you uh, you watched the game from home, uh, and I was there. And let me just tell you, it was it, even the atmosphere maybe leading up to the game was a little flat, I'd say. I think people were worn out from uh, the LSU-Bama game. But, uh, I mean, that shouldn't leak over to the players, and it certainly did. And, and Jeff, it was really just a, a stinker overall. Yeah, it was a head scratcher, wasn't it, Larry? I mean, like, uh, I will say this. You know, you know, you watch the the pregame chant, uh, you know, that Breeze and Demario Davis do in the end zone, and they had the cameras on that before the game. And I noticed that there wasn't a ton of energy in that. That's usually where everybody kind of – it's like a cauldron of emotion and everybody gets psyched up. And I, it was definitely noticeable that – some of the players, it was just kind of they were going through the motions on that. And, and maybe I'm reading too much into that, but it's it showed that way on the field too. And these things happen, man. It's the NFL. And Sean Payton said it after the Seahawks game in week three. Sometimes the more desperate team 
in this league wins. And I thought that was definitely the case yesterday. You could just see the energy level, the way Atlanta played. And then it seemed like every time the Saints started to get something going, they either shot themselves in the foot with a penalty or just a bad break went against them. I mean, there's just a number of things that didn't go their way. And uh, I think it's one of those games, Larry, where you just burn the tape and move on. I think the more pressing concerns for the Saints right now are the injuries that came out of that game. Marshawn Lattimore, maybe Andres Pete. Um, can they get those guys back? Because that also contributed, I think, to the loss. Yeah, I do think the losing Lattimore probably hurt them, but it's not like Atlanta was scoring touchdowns at will. And, uh, you know, I just think it was just a combination of boneheaded plays everywhere. You look at defense, they had four drives extended because of hands-to-the-face penalties. And some of those happened on third down where the team was supposed to get off the field. Then you look at the roughing the punter penalty by JT yep. Gray. And, of course, you look at the TV. Play. Yeah, you look at the TV afterward, and Sean Payton's all over uh, Darren Rizzi saying, look, this is a total boneheaded screw-up. Fourth down, they're punting, and then they get the ball back. It's first down. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, you look offensively, uh, leaky pass protection, didn't run the ball hardly at all, and that was play calling. And it just was messy. The whole thing was messy. And and Jeff, I wrote a column after the game uh, basically spelling out every year the Saints are good. They have a stinker. And I mean, it is clockwork. 2006, it was Washington. 2009, it was Tampa. Uh, 2010, I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it might have been Tampa again. I've, uh, I might as well pull up my column. But look, Didn't they have a Rams one, in, a Rams one, one year? They had 2011. Yeah, 2011, they had, they had a, uh, a loss at the Rams. This That one occurred after they beat the Colts 62-7. to and they yeah. go to St. Louis and lose there, give the Rams their first win of the year, and then the Saints don't lose a regular season game after that. Look, we saw it in 2013. We've seen them every year. They've had some sort of stinker somewhere. And to me, I feel like this is the stinker. I don't think this is long-term panic. There are some things they do have to improve upon. And, uh, you know, I feel like maybe this week some of these things kind of caught up to them. Uh, but I don't think it should be major panic mode. I mean, Jeff, people were tweeting me, is it time to panic? And I'm like, of course not. It's not time to panic. But uh, I think people are just looking at this team and feeling maybe they had some flaws going into, say, this game and just throughout their team. And now that they lost the game, people are going to start really harping on maybe some of those flaws. I think there was a combination of factors. You mentioned uh, some of the play calling. I think Sean Payton, you could read between the lines. He knows they didn't have a great game plan. And sometimes it's just sheer uh, luck or coincidence. Like they just didn't call the right play at the right time. Atlanta had the right defense called at the right time. But I think really watching the game again this morning, Larry, it came down to situational football. You mentioned the the roughing the punter call. That's a perfect example what are you doing going for a punt block in that situation? There's just no reason to do it. And those are the things the Saints have been great at all year. They've been great at it for a number of years in the Peyton era, and they just didn't do it yesterday. Every third down went against them. Every key fourth down, they didn't have the right play call on. Uh, Breeze lots of times wasn't pulling the trigger because there wasn't anybody open, and the Saints just weren't They just weren't in sync offensively, dialing up like we're used to seeing those those great play calls. And I think Sean Payton knows that 
that he didn't have the best game plan either. So I think across the board, it was just a stinker, and you just got to move on. Yeah, I, I do think, though, I look at it as far as the offensive line, and I do think that we that needs to be something we need to watch. Like Andres Pete has been up and down this season. Sometimes he could make a great block, and other times he can get mowed down. And he got mowed down a couple of times, uh, forcing Drew Brees to take a sack. And then when Andres Pete got hurt, Will Clapp came in, and he didn't fare all that great either. And I could tell you, actually, uh, that Teron Armstead, I, I think it was said during the broadcast that Teron Armstead was ill, and he definitely was after the game. Like, he had no voice. Uh, you could tell he was he had worn out and he was coughing and he didn't usually he he speaks to everyone and anyone with the media and he just said look I literally can't talk and you, so you could tell he was battling something and so uh, you know maybe it was just kind of a one blip wonder uh, where Grady Jarrett look Grady Jarrett's a good player but I mean yeah he's a great player yeah but you still look at it and the Falcons came in with only seven sacks and they got six yesterday. Uh, I mean, come on, you, that, that cannot happen. And uh, I think Drew Brees knows that. And they went 0 for 3 on fourth down. They were 3 of 12 on third down. I think offensively, uh, that maybe a few other spots that we need to look at offensively that maybe there's still some question marks there. I just think defensively it was just one of those days where I feel like the Falcons had some good runs early some of these reverses and things like that and uh the the final numbers probably look worse than maybe they actually were but still uh given that Marshawn Lattimore went out the game it's not like Matt Ryan threw all over him so I feel like maybe if I'm going to point to one side of the football where I'm thinking okay what is something I'm looking at that might worry me in the future I would look more offensively than defensively, and I can't believe I'm actually saying that because it might be the first time in Saints history under Sean Payton and Drew Brees I'm ever saying that. Yeah, well, I mean, just right away, the thing that stands out, and this has been a long-running issue for this offense over the last year and a half, the biggest play in the game was a 22-yard pass to Jared Cook. Uh, they had 18-yarder, 17-yarder. They're not getting those big explosive plays, and that's happened at times in the past for this offense and uh, when, when you can limit the explosive plays against the Saints, like Atlanta did yesterday, you can kind of hang in there against this team. And that certainly, you know, raised its head yesterday. We saw Ted Ginn Jr., a couple of – he's just not really that great on competitive balls, right, Larry? I mean, that's kind of you – know you know what you're getting with Ted Ginn Jr. He's a speed guy. He's going to make a few of those explosive plays a, a few times a year. But he's, he's got – some weaknesses, and one of the biggest ones we saw yesterday, he's not going to go up in traffic and make that tough catch like like you see um, Mike Thomas make time after time. And there were a couple times yesterday where he had a chance to make a play and didn't. So it was just kind of across the board. They never got Kamara on track, really. Uh, the line would have a breakdown here or there. Breeze, I don't think, played very sharply. He wasn't his usual accurate self. Decision-making wasn't as good. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. The offense – was a bit of a head-scratcher because Atlanta had struggled so much, and I couldn't believe they were able to cover as well as they did on the back end. That seemed to be the, the thing that stood out to me because the coverage lots of times led to the sacks. Uh, the Heck, a couple times, Larry, the Falcons were getting sacks with three rushers. I mean, you know, five blockers and three guys rushing, and they were getting a sack. Uh, that should never happen. 
And the Falcons were without Desmond Trufant. And so that yep. you figured, oh, wow, all right, it'll be a big day. It was a big day for Mike Thomas. Uh, 13 catches, 14 targets, 157, but no touchdowns. His longest play was 18 yards. And, Jeff, you mentioned Ted Ginn. Uh, look, three targets, no receptions. I mean, you need someone outside of, say, your running backs and a tight end. And then your fullback, I mean, those, it, it went literally after Mike Thomas. Kamara, eight catches. Cook, six catches. Murray, two. Zach, line, two. And then Traquan Smith had one catch. Taysom Hill had one catch. I mean, you, you, you know, it's, Jeff, we, we tease sometimes about the, the number two receiver. But, uh, look, I think yesterday it showed that the fact that they don't really kind of have one could hurt them at times. Yeah, yeah. Well, Ted Ginn Jr. has got to make some of those plays. It's plain and simple. And he didn't do it. And I felt like the Saints really had no answer. And maybe that's what Sean Payton was getting on where he said it starts with me because he's got to have to be more creative with what they have um, because that's a, a defense that you should be able to move the ball on, especially without Trufant in the game. And, heck, they lost Devontae Freeman, too, you know, in the game. And they were down to their third running back. Uh, and so it's it's a good example of everyone has injuries, everybody has to overcome them, and it's part of the game. And, and Atlanta was able to do a better better job of overcoming their some of their issues than the Saints were yesterday. And I do think the Falcons players uh, elevated their play, knowing that the rumblings of Dan Quinn that if the Falcons would have lost this game, and if say the Saints would have covered the spread, what was it? Almost two touchdowns. Say if right. the, yeah, say if the Saints would have blown the doors off of Atlanta, Dan Quinn would be fired today. And just talking to our colleagues, uh, Jeff Schultz and Jason Butt, who uh, covered the Falcons side for the Athletic, they were under that impression too. And so, I think the the Falcons and we again we highlighted this a little bit on the Thursday pod, saying that maybe this could be the game where they feel like okay, they could come in and overtop the Saints who've been deemed as one of the best teams in football and and Jeff it's almost a little similar I'm, I'm trying to think back remember a few years ago when the Falcons came in undefeated and the the Saints were just mediocre and the Saints were able to beat them and end their undefeated streak uh, I think that's the year the Falcons went to the Super Bowl but still they get their they're going to get the team's best shots that's something Cam Jordan talked a lot about yesterday in the locker room and the Falcons almost kind of like it was their Super Bowl. They had to come in and play their guts out, and they played better than the Saints in every phase yesterday. Yeah, I mean, this could be the kind of game that turns around the Falcons' season. I mean, they're still up against it at 2-7. and seven. I think the key for the Saints now is you got to move on. Uh, certainly, Sean Payton will have their attention in film study and in, and in practice this week. Uh, they go to Tampa Bay, and that's always one of those kind of you never know what you're going to get games. Tampa's a very – Jekyll and Hyde type team. Uh, so they got to get back on the right track because there's very little margin for error in the NFC, the way it's shaping up right now. We're starting to see kind of who the pretenders and the contenders are in the NFC. And uh, getting one of those first-round buys in the playoffs like the Saints were able to do last year, I think has got to be the goal. And the way the West is shaping up, the fact that Minnesota and Green Bay keep winning, and even Carolina is still in this thing. Uh, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, incumbent upon the Saints to not have another one of these slip-up games the rest of the way. Or they're not going to, they're not going to like the results in the playoffs. 
No, and right now, because the Panthers uh, couldn't punch it in at the goal line at the end of the game and try to go for two, uh, look, they lost to the Packers, but now that means the Packers are a half game above the Saints in the NFC standing. So if the playoffs, the old, if it started today, the Saints would be hosting as the three seed and not have a bye. And that is not optimal. And so uh, we know home field advantage. We've seen it so many times. Yes, can the Saints win on the road? Sure, but you don't want to have to go to Green Bay. I mean, yesterday it was snowing in Green Bay, and it was it's November 11th. I mean, come on. And so, uh, look, tonight's game is going to be pretty pivotal. Of course, the Monday night game, 49ers against the Seahawks. I'm sure a lot of Saints fans' eyes will be watching that. Uh, but, Jeff, you're right. You cannot afford another slip-up. And, look, we've seen, uh, like you said, we, we've seen wacky things happen in Tampa. Just remember last year, the Saints needed that block punt by Taysom Hill uh, to really get yep. that thing going. And uh, without that, they were sleeping through that game, and they were able to manage to. And I think Drew Brees referenced it yesterday where he's seen the team kind of sleepy through quarters and this, that, and the other, and then wake up. And I, feel, I, I think of that Tampa game last year, and I think that's exactly what happened. They were sleepy. Something happened, and it jump-started them. And that didn't happen yesterday. And that no, that's remember, a rarity. Remember that game a few years ago, Larry? Uh, I think at home against Washington, where they were sleepwalking through three-and-a-half quarters. And then all of a sudden, they scored two touchdowns in the last like two-and-a-half minutes of the game and snuck out of a victory. Uh, you're right. It never happened yesterday, but we've seen this happen before, so it's not uncommon. But yesterday, it seemed like every time they had a, a chance to get something going, just a penalty here or a breakdown in the protection, it just it just didn't happen for them. Man. And, and so they've got to all come back together, get on the same page. I don't expect this to be a long-term issue. I just It was just one of those days, man. We all have, we have in, our, in our lives, right? You get up, you stub your toe and go into the kitchen, you spill your coffee, that's what happened to the Saints yesterday. Yeah, I caught up with a bunch of players after the game, like Von Bell and Eli Apple and and Josh Hill. And Eli Apple literally saying, I'll just quote him, he said, shoot, we better get right, uh, but it's just a rough day at the office. Like They know that they screwed up some things, but they're not thinking, oh my gosh, we're all, all of a sudden falling apart. I mean, that's that's not the case and Josh Hill saying things like they'll learn from it and figure it out. And I mean, look, and, and Josh Hill also saying that he thinks this team is built to bounce back from a game like this. And we've seen them bounce back from games like this, like especially when they're good. We've seen them bounce back from games like this time and time again. Uh, maybe one of these losses cost you in seeding. Just remember in, in 11, Jeff, if the Saints do take care of business and don't lose to the Rams... They are not having to go to San Francisco and and play that divisional round. And that game happens in the Dome instead of on the... So even, you know, there are ramifications from this, but I I just think that this team, the past three years and what we've seen already this year, is well-equipped to overcome it. And, And Jeff, how often do we talk about the old Sean Payton carnival and crisis well, they found a crisis now at a midpoint after they overcame one. And so I think this is almost like a rallying point. I'm not saying it's a good thing that they lost, but uh, it's good to kind of shock your system a little bit and say, all right, we're, we're not, uh, you know, the best of the best of the best without flaws. Uh, we've got to make sure we play our A game every week. Yeah, and it, it just was a little surprising to me, though. Uh, you know, just 
I didn't think this team had one of those kind of games in them because of the leadership in the locker room, because of the coaching staff. But it just kind of all converged and conspired against them in that game yesterday. Uh, they cannot afford another one. There's no doubt. I don't think they'll have another one like this. But they've left themselves with very little margin for error. But there's still so much football left to be played around the NFC. You mentioned the game tonight. But the NFC West is so competitive this year. Uh, San Francisco is not going to go unbeaten. They're going to they're going to drop a game or two at least. Uh, so there's still a lot that is going to can take place. But the Saints have to look inside, right? They have to look at themselves, look in the mirror, as they say and get their own house in order and not worry about what's going on around the league. Right, and then you mentioned the injuries, too. You're wondering, all right, is Marshawn Lattimore going to be ready next week uh, because he's the one who follows around Mike Evans, of course. And if you are without Marshawn Lattimore, you are definitely at a disadvantage. Like I said, I don't think the corners played terrible yesterday without him, and Matt Ryan's numbers really indicate they didn't play really that badly uh but no, but it's, okay. it's yeah yeah they played fine i just think the the front seven couldn't stop the run enough and uh, only one sack on matt ryan i mean usually they the recent history they've been able to get a lot of pressure on them so they didn't play well enough up front either and so and that and then i look I, we we've talked plenty enough over the years about andres pete and i'm sure you probably agree with me he if you're gonna Rank the five offensive linemen. He's probably fifth on the list. And he's, uh, even with Eric McCoy, I think he's probably still fifth on the list. Uh, if it, And he injured his arm and looked pretty rough, actually, when he came off the field. So yeah. I'm just going to assume he's going to miss time. Uh, is Will Clapp going to be good enough uh, to get in there and get the job done? Uh, I, I think maybe a week's worth of preparation and knowing he's going to play may help him. But that is definitely... Pete or Clap, whoever's at that left guard spot, uh, is something we've, we're going to have to watch going forward. And, and I think the Lattimore situation, because this was an issue for him, hamstrings, coming out of Ohio State, it's the first time we've really seen it happen to him in his NFL career. But uh, those things can be finicky. Uh, now, I think it was kind of a positive sign that he was on the sideline afterward. He was getting on the bike, trying to get stretched out. Uh, you know how those injuries are. You just never know. Uh, the fact that he didn't go back in the game, obviously, is a concern. But Lattimore is one of those guys. I mean, he's one of those domino players. You know, once he goes out, everybody else has to step into a new role. And while they played, I thought, did a good job against the Falcons, it's a big blow if you all of a sudden you've got, um, you know, Eli Apple as your lead corner going against Mike Evans. I mean, it's just a big drop-off there. Uh, so I think, I think yeah, they've got some injury concerns. And this is the first time, really, one of their key indispensable guys on defense has gone out in the last two years. We'll see if he comes back this week. But for the most part, Jordan, Demario Davis, and Lattimore have been kind of iron men. Yeah, they were able to absorb the, the Rankins injury. Uh, and, and But it's – look, I mean, Rankins is a – is a good player, but he's not on the same level as, say, a Cam Jordan or like a Demario Davis or a Lattimore. I mean, so like on all three levels, uh, defensive line, linebackers, and secondary, those are the three guys you really cannot afford to lose. And so, yeah, I'm curious to see where they are. At least, uh, look, P.J. Williams got came back from his suspension yesterday, and he was the primary nickel. But in a pinch, you put him outside, and C.J. Gardner-Johnson, someone who we've praised highly who I th we think can play uh you know 
at least he can get in there and play nickel and he's capable of doing it. So it's not like the Saints are in, say, Ken Crawley mode, you know. So at least right. it, at least we've seen these three players play well. And if they've got to be the guys next week or maybe even a week after, they've got to be that. And so it'll be something we watch. I don't think it's total, oh, my God, go get the – brown paper bag and start hyperventilating thing but like it is it, it would be a blow so we'll we'll be curious to see where that is so but all right jeff let's switch over to the good of the weekend it's not often we'd have to do a good and a bad of the weekend but you were in tuscaloosa i'm sure the scene was epic uh, of course lsu beats alabama and my goodness it is uh, a long time coming and Let's just say that Joe Burrow will not be a New Orleans Saint. I'm just going to say that. He's probably going to be a Cincinnati Bengal <laughs> after what he yeah, showed. Yeah, or a Miami Dolphin or somebody. Yes, exactly what he showed uh, on uh, on Saturday in Bryant-Denny Stadium. And, and Jeff, it, you know, I got to see him on the road in person at Texas, and you just figured he would do no wrong. And just watching him – from afar, and you got to see him in person in Tuscaloosa. It's amazing to say this that you just assume he would do no wrong, and he really didn't. And and the entire team responded accordingly. Really, yeah, I I, I said it was the best performance, individual performance in the history of the program, and I don't think there's any doubt about it when you consider on the road and in Tuscaloosa against Alabama, number one versus number two, the stakes that were on the line, everything involved. Uh, to do it at the, on that stage, uh, I, there's just no way that anyone's ever had a game like that. Uh, the first half, he basically pitched a perfect game almost. I think he had two incompletions, three touchdown passes. No one's ever done that against a Nick Saban team. He was in complete control. It, it, you know, you've drawn the comparison so often to Drew Brees, and it's a really apt comparison. I know he's a little taller in stature than Brees, uh, a little more athletic probably as a runner, but – He's just always in control, and every time Alabama looked like they were getting momentum, getting back in that game, he would like snuff it out with a with one of those kind of momentum sapping drives, and just really kind of put it to Alabama. He was always a step ahead, and uh, you know, like what what Coach Ogeron said last week, he thinks Joe Burrow is one of the five most important recruits in the history of the program. I don't think there's any doubt about it because if they don't get him, uh, when you're looking at who the other quarterbacks on the roster were, Lowell Narcisse, Justin McMillan, Miles Brennan. Uh, really just an amazing storyline. And LSU was the better team, Larry. I mean, there was no doubt about it. They were the best team. I think Nick Saban knows it, and certainly Ed Ogeron knew it because he told his team all week, and, and they played like it. And, Jeff, when you look at the way Alabama played really to start the game, it almost seemed like they were the team that hadn't been in that position before and LSU had been. I mean, Tua runs and kind of just drops the ball and LSU picks it up yeah. and and LSU just did no wrong really on, on offense and uh, especially in that first half. And man, it, it's I, I think it's more that, and yes, it's one game and yes, it's against Alabama and this, that, and the other, but uh, and LSU still has three more games left and then an SEC championship and we'll see what happens there. But, but I, I just think that people were amazed of the first half. I think maybe the second half people like, all right, this is maybe the game we thought we might see a little bit more back and forth. But I just think people across the country 
were just astonished by what they saw in the first half. I know I was astonished by what I saw just in the first half where it was just kind of a little bit of an overall domination in every which way you could spin it. And you have to give Ed Ogeron credit for the moves he's made kind of systematically over the years. I think I think all the moves that he's made yielded yes, uh, Saturday's result. Uh, you know, he's upgraded the coaching staff, bringing in Joe Brady, uh, bringing in Bill Johnson, Dave Aranda. He kept him around, um, you know, fixing the special teams with Greg McMahon. All these things needed to be done to where you felt like, if you're an LSU fan, I mean, so many times I've covered these games, Larry, and it felt like, to use that cliched uh, phrase, it felt like LSU was playing checkers and Alabama was playing chess. I mean, it just felt like they were so much better coached and so much more sophisticated in their approach. That's over with. I mean, in this game, LSU was every bit the match coaching-wise, and I actually think they were much better coached they were a step ahead, especially when they had the ball in offense. Alabama was almost helpless to stop them. Uh, and that has changed. Very gradually, Ed Ogeron has, has improved that coaching staff. And Alabama, of course, had to replace seven coaches off last year's team. And frankly, I don't think he did a very good job. I don't think he replaced the coaches with the same level of guys that left. And we saw that with the Saints. The fact that – remember a few years ago when they lost – uh, Aaron Cromer, uh, Dennis Allen left. Greg Williams, of course, left. I mean, they had a lot of really good coaches from the Super Bowl team left. They went through a period where the Saints staff wasn't very good, and it forced Sean Payton to kind of rejigger the staff again. He cleaned out the defensive side of the ball, and they kind of got back on track with this current staff. I think that is what Nick Saban's going to have to do in this offseason because they just got out game plan in that game, and uh, it's a really good sign for LSU the way this staff – kind of put together that game plan because I really felt like they, they outmatched Alabama at every step of the way. Yeah, and we talk a ton about Joe Burrow. Look, he's going to win the Heisman. I mean, this was it. We we knew that if he played well, this would bode well for him. There's really no close second anymore in the Heisman race. Uh, you look at the athletic straw poll right now, just from all of our college writers, uh, some have votes, some don't, but a lot of them do have votes in the actual Heisman race. But uh, you look at our straw poll, and Joe Burrow got 49 of the 50 first-place votes, and the 50th, I'm sorry, I've never heard of this kid, but it's a running back from Oklahoma State. I'm thinking what what I'm – someone just being a contrarian on our staff. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, right. it is a uh, it is a, uh, a, a total domination in this by Joe Burrow, and I think it will be uh, with this award. And – uh, we're, I'm sure we're going to be talking about this a lot because we got a few more weeks left, and then the SEC championship game, and then you're going to have the Heisman Trophy ceremony, and uh, it should be Joe lifting up the trophy. But uh, but Jeff, like, we we've seen Heisman Trophy winners, you know, come and go, the Eric Crouches, the Jason Whites of the world, uh, but for this program, for LSU, and just for uh, the position where it's happening, quarterback, because of their their reputation that quarterbacks stink at LSU. Uh, the fact that they're getting this, uh, I mean, it's it's just one that I think people are even still in shock right now that this is all happening. And you know who's probably not in shock that this is happening is Joe Burrow, and I think that's what makes him a difference maker in all of college football. Well, Larry, there were I think 
two dozen NFL scouts at the game yesterday. Miami had three different people there, including Chris Greer, their general manager. He also was out at the Oregon game the week before to see Justin Herbert in Oregon. Clearly, they're going to draft a quarterback, and uh, I don't know if they're going to get the number one, but Burrow has put himself in the conversation now, and that is remarkable considering he started the year as a third-day pick and has shot up all the way. At one time, he was like a second-day pick, and then I remember hearing he was going to be an early second-rounder. Then he was a first-rounder. Now they're talking about him as the number one overall pick. Uh, And it just goes to show you when you get someone like him and you get the right system in place, how player and offensive scheme, the fit, and it can just lead to these kind of results. And I think it's a good lesson for everyone also to learn that it's not always the player that's struggling. Sometimes he's not in the right fit. And we're seeing what happens when you get this Joe Brady offense Oh, and it reminded me so much. I'm a little all over the place right here, but one of the things I wanted to say was uh, I can't tell you how many times I watched the game uh, Saturday in the press box and thought this is exactly what the Saints do. I mean, they they do so many things that Joe Brady obviously picked up from the Saints, rushing to the line of scrimmage to get that quick second and one, you know, catch the defense off balance, uh, or third and one, running a hurry up, uh, trying to draw them off sides in in a fourth and three, you know, all these things that you can just tell they picked up from the Saints. So it really validates for the first time Sean Payton and his offensive scheme. I mean, we saw Joe Lombardi go off to Detroit. It never really took hold in Detroit under Lombardi. Uh, and it really, because Pete Carmichael stayed there the whole time, we haven't seen the Saints offense spread around like we've seen some of these other offensive coaching trees. And I think this is the first time we've seen it happen, and it's certainly validating the greatness of Sean Payton and his offensive system. Yeah, and remember, Curtis Johnson went on to be Tulane's head coach, and that certainly didn't. I'm sure he brought all everything he could possibly bring from the Saints for his years of experience, and it didn't translate there either. And so, but yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, uh, and kind of lucky for us that we get to see it all unfold uh, with us covering Sean Payton and the Saints for so long, and us be following LSU. So. When we speak on it, immediately, a lot of times we've been ahead of the game, and now it's almost like a lot of the rest of the media around the country is kind of playing catch-up. We've been kind of seeing this for a while, but uh, we're just kind of fortunate that way because, say, if it was Sean McVay's offense, like we wouldn't be as in tune with it. So I feel like uh, we've kind of lucked out in being able to uh, see it come to fruition, and now everyone's really come to see it to fruition. But, but Jeff, just uh, we talked a lot about – Joe Burrow, obviously, but look, we don't. I feel like, and it's not our fault, just because that's the position, and and he's the transfer player at a, at the most, you know, premium position in all of football. But Clyde Edwards-Helaire, my goodness, I mean, he has really become. I just remember at the regular, the start of the season, where he is just this guy holding some snaps and waiting for the the freshman kids to come up and play. And he has been uh, incredible. I mean, just from everything he's been able to do and pick up this offense and be as versatile, almost like their Alvin Kamara. He doesn't look it. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a different body type, but he's basically their Alvin Kamara. And I think Joe Burrow sees him that way. I'm sure Ed Ogeron and Steve Ensminger and and Joe Brady see him that way. And and he is really – come to light and just continues to get better and better. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty cool to see. Yeah. I guess we won't hear any more clamoring for, uh, you know, the freshman running backs, John Emery, 
or Davis. Remember, we were hearing that early in the year. There's a lot yes. of people wanting those guys. Who's next? Because Clyde Edwards Lair was arguably next to Burrow, the most valuable player in that game. I mean, he was he was exactly like Alvin Kamara, I thought. Throw it out to him in the flat, and he's going to make the first guy miss, and he did it almost every time and turned like a three- or four-yard gain into a, a nine- or ten-yard gain. Those are huge plays. Uh, and you're right. I, I was standing interviewing him in the end zone after the game, and I'm as tall as he is. I mean, he's basically looking me in the eye. It's amazing. But he's put together now, and he, I thought he personified the effort that LSU came into the game with. You know, we talked earlier about the more desperate team wins. Clearly, LSU wanted that game more than Alabama. You could see it in the way Clyde Edwards-Alaire ran. I mean, he just – he was not going to get knocked back. He was always going to fall forward. He's not the biggest guy, but the fight and determination he played with kind of symbolized the entire uh, LSU team that day, and they were just not going to be denied. They were they were ready with a game plan. They were ready from – from the opening kickoff, and it showed. And you're right, Alabama made some just un-Alabama-like plays. I mean, Tua dropping the ball, the punter letting the ball go through his hands. They get a, a penalty, what was it, 12 men on the field that negated a, an interception. I mean, just really things we're not used to seeing the Tide do, and uh, LSU took advantage of it. It's almost like they knew that this was their time that they were going to go down. It, it almost kind of just felt that way, that – uh, maybe what they saw on tape, they were thinking, oh my gosh, this LSU team's actually really good. <laughs> you know, and, and they maybe didn't think that uh, too much in the past. And Jeff, I do want to give, even though the defense gave up 41, like I do think the defense deserves some credit. Uh, I've, won, I've been one to kind of always be a little sheepish on, on, say, Rashard Lawrence. I thought he had a really good game for himself, uh, was able to get some pressure and bat some passes down. And so I liked what I saw from him. Uh, Christian Fulton played lights out. I know Derek Stingley had uh, that long touchdown where he's trying to communicate with the sideline. That was kind of crazy. But uh, you look at uh, someone like like Christian Fulton played lights out, and they weren't even throwing at him. Uh, it's amazing uh, because of the talent of Stingley, but he really shut them down on that side of the field. And uh, so, I'm, you know, it's I, a lot of times you and me think of this as, all right, draft stock, because we know Lawrence is going to be in, in the in the draft and we know Fulton's going to be in the draft. And, you know, maybe talk about the collective effort. But I do think a lot of players on LSU's team in this game, uh, obviously Burrow, but a lot of players for LSU improve their stock. Yeah, I thought they had a really good game plan, and the players, uh, they won the battle of the line of scrimmage. I mean, I know Najee Harris had some really nice runs. I mean, he's a really terrific player, um, just a, a, a tremendous power runner. But for the overall, I felt like LSU, other than some of those just glaring breakdowns and single and man-to-man coverage, played very well. I mean, they played very good situational defense and some key third downs. They had the big fourth down stop. And I thought Lawrence was the best defense alignment on the field yesterday, I mean, Saturday. So, yeah, I think he definitely improved his draft stock. And one thing I wanted to say, Larry, that I forgot to mention earlier, we were talking about Joe Brady. Uh, you know, Pete Thamel, our colleague, uh, our friend uh, who's now at Yahoo, reported about Joe Brady, uh, the LSU prepared to offer him. That's been kind of in the mix for a while now. And I actually talked to Scott Woodward after the game Saturday. And um, I can tell you, I mean, they are not – going to let Joe Brady go unless he wants to go. In other words, he may get an offer 
that they can't match. And what I mean by that is it might be a head coaching job somewhere or it might be back to the NFL and Joe Brady simply wants to go to the NFL. Uh, And that's something else you can't do anything about. But it's not going to come down to money. They are going to pay him, whether it's $2 million, whatever it's going to take to keep him. So the only way I think Joe Brady leaves is if somebody big time offers him a head coaching job that he cannot refuse or an NFL like offensive coordinator position opens and he wants to get back to the NFL. Otherwise, uh, LSU is going to step up and keep him. They know uh, what they've got in Joe Brady, and I think he's worth whatever they pay him considering – uh, you know what it's going to mean in recruiting for recruits to come in here now that see this offense and want to play in it, or in terms of ticket sales, the profile, everything involved. Uh, Joe Brady is worth every penny. I'm not trying to be kind of flipping here, but do you really think he's ready to be an NFL offensive coordinator? I just don't think so yet. That's just me. No, but but if somebody offers him, I don't, I don't know. Sure, he's 30 years old. I, I don't know. The one thing that I would say that makes him different than a lot of the people we've talked about on the Saints offensive coaches. He's really, really good in front of a room. He's very, very good. He's got that Peyton it quality. He uh, he can capture a room. He's great on the field uh, with the players. He's great in the classroom, in study, you know, film study. He's got whatever that is that makes him a little different than, say, some of the other assistants the Saints have had. But he's only 30 years old. He, I think it would behoove him to stay. And, and look, he's got a three-year contract, so he's got two more years after this one. He'd probably be smart to stay uh, and, and, and take advantage of that, get more experience. But this day and age, I mean, look at some of these coaches that are getting head coaching jobs. I mean, Arizona Cardinals got one right now, and no one thought he would be ready. Uh, so we'll see. Uh, but I, I'm just, I just know LSU is not going to let him go um, because of money. It's not going to happen. I would agree there. I, I think it would it would it would be best for him to do it at least for one more year. I mean, look, he's done it for one year. I mean, come on. Uh, but now you know, programs. Who knows? Arkansas might come up and try to offer him their head coaching job. Something crazy. Who knows? But uh, uh, but yeah, it's all, all in all though an incredible weekend for the history of LSU football and the attitude of say Rashard Lawrence and Joe Burrow is look. This is one goal. They got plenty of other ones left, and we've got plenty of more games to see how far they can take this. Uh, we assume SEC championship game. We assume college football playoff. Uh, they needed this win, though, for us to really just assume that that was going to happen, and they got it. So, uh, of course, we'll talk plenty more about that on our Thursday podcast. Of course, we'll get also talk Saints and Tampa. I could tell you we're going to be talking some Tulane and Temple uh, I'm going to be heading over to Uptown to their campus uh, at some point this week, and uh, they've got bigger things to look forward to now that they're bowl eligible. So we'll uh, we'll talk about that on the Thursday podcast as well. But look, every Wednesday, you've got to be listening to the To Be Honest with D'Angelo Williams podcast. Of course, you know the former longtime Carolina Panthers running back, D'Angelo Williams, an athletic senior writer and fantasy expert, Jake Seeley fearlessly dispense both the players and the fans' perspective of everything on and off the field. So make sure you go check out that podcast as well. So I want to thank Danielle for always putting up with us. And uh, we will be back with you guys on Thursday. Of course, Thursday's pod is behind the athletic paywall. So you have to be a subscriber to go check that out. So 
do so. Theathletic.com slash dunk and holder. You can go subscribe through there. And you want to still listen to wherever you do on your Mondays, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, uh, review, rate, subscribe, do all those goodies. So for Jeff Duncan, glad he's feeling better. Uh, I am Larry Holder, and thanks once again for listening in to the Duncan Holder Podcast. <laughs>